Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice Podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show again today. First of all, Happy New Year! (laughs) I hope you had a great festive break and feel both recharged and also ready to roll for the year ahead. In fact, if you want to really make sure that your property business planning gets off to a fast start, then why not join us at one of our forthcoming 360-degree business planning workshops later this month. We ran the inaugural one in November, and that went really well. So we've beefed it up a bit, and we'll be running another in London on Saturday, sorry, Sunday, the 22nd of January, and also one in Manchester on Saturday, the 29th of January. Our aim is to help as many of you as possible have your best year yet in property. Check out the show notes for the link to the sign-up page and just drop me an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net instead if you prefer that way. Right now though, on with today's show and what a show it is. We've no less than 10 additional property financing strategies at the more creative end of the spectrum to get through. So buckle up and have a listen as I'm joined once again by my good friend Damien Fogg as we share some of those based on our own personal experience. But given that neither Damien nor I have any time discipline whatsoever, we managed to overrun on the allotted time we planned for this episode. So that's why it's broken down into two parts. In part two, which will be coming up later, we'll cover adverse possession, credit cards and personal loans, assignable off-plan contracts, friends and family, and joint ventures. However, today is also content-rich as we cover 100% vendor finance, developer finance, and bank finance, as well as assisted sale and exchange with delayed completion. So let's have a listen to that right now then. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Hi everybody, thanks for joining me again on the Property Voice podcast. I'm very pleased to say that um, it's, a, it's a bit of a wrap-up actually and a whistle-stop tour of, of uh, sweeping up some of the remaining creative financing strategies and I'm very pleased to say I've got uh, with me today on the call is Damien Fogg, my good friend and business partner. First of all, Damien, how are you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Hello, everybody listening. It's great to have you on. Again, it's not the first time. We're always happy to have you on the show. Thanks, Damien. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a tete-a-tete, I think, with some of these remaining creative financing strategies. And rather than breaking them down into individual episodes, um, it's a bit of a signposting exercise to go through 10. So we're going to go through quite quickly. But I'll tell you what, Damien, just as what I normally do with my subject matter expert guests is just I ask them to introduce themselves and their expertise, as it were. So why don't you just go ahead and do that to, to set the scene a little bit? I mean, hopefully people know who I am by now, but um, I'm a chartered building surveyor and a um, qualified mortgage broker, so I've got quite a lot of experience in property in general. I've worked with Richard now um, for, what, two, three years now? So Something we know like each other quite well, got the same values, sort of, so hopefully everything I say should fit in with what you've said so far, um, but been working in property for 10 plus years hundreds, thousands of property developments, managements, blah, blah, blah. So quite a lot of property experience. 
Yeah, and I think also some some finance or mortgage experience as well. Is that right? Yeah, qualified mortgage broker as well now. So probably all the stuff that we are going to talk about, because I'm authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, this is all generic advice that, as Richard said, is signposting you for things, but don't take any of it as purely personal financial advice and do make sure you speak to relevant qualified people to look at your individual circumstances. So the caveat's done. <laughs> yeah, indeed. That's, uh, that's our get-out-of-jail-free card out of the way. Well done. <laughs> Don't sue me, please. Don't sue any of us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, fabulous. So we've got, we've got 10 strategies, creative financing strategies. We've got experience in nearly all of them, I'm glad to say. Um, so how do you want to play it, Damien? What's the best way? Well, we've, we've got the 10, but I'm not 100% sure who's going to do which one. So why don't you get started, and then I'll figure out which one I'm going to talk about next. Okay, fair enough. In our usual, you know, laissez-faire style. <laughs> Play it by ear. That's Play kind of my ear. style. Okay, so I'm going to start us off then. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, I've got to think about what I'm going to say. The first one I want to talk about is um, it's a kind of form of vendor finance, and it's installment contracts. And... Um, so this is essentially where you end up buying a property in installments, funnily enough. So it's, it's over time um, that you actually make the repayments. So there's a, there's a number of legal structures that you can adopt to do this. Um, I've done this quite recently in particular with some of the properties I've been acquiring in the U.S., over the last 12 months or so. Uh, they seem, like everything in property, seems to be bigger and you know existing longer in the US market than in the UK market. And so uh, I bought a couple of properties in Orlando and Chicago um, over the last 12 months, and I bought them on installment contracts. And then what essentially that means is the owner of the property agrees to uh, sell that property to me over time. And in both of these cases, it happens to be 15 years. So uh, I don't need a mortgage. I don't need a deposit. I just basically pay them a monthly fee, uh, which uh, each month goes by, I get an extra percentage of the property. Technically and legally, it doesn't work that way. I only get ownership once the, all of the installments have been paid. And that gives a little bit of a clue to one of the downside risks, which is if I don't make all the payments, I never own that property. But um, yeah, it's been quite useful for me. Um, it, you do need to do your sums because it's sometimes pitched as, you know, no, no mortgage required, no interest to pay, all those sorts of sales messages. But the reality is if someone's going to sell you a property over, in this case, it happens to be 15 years, um, they, they need to get a return on their money as well. And that's built into the repayments. But the upside is uh, the properties are rented out. They're rented out for more than the installments. And so therefore, I, uh, once the costs are taken into account, they're pretty much break even in terms of a cash flow point of view. But I um, essentially, after 15 years, I own the property home and clear. So uh, I look at this as a wealth build, long-term wealth building strategy rather than a short-term cash flow strategy. And that's why I'm doing it. So it's just an extra dimension to my portfolio installment contracts where the vendor is effectively funding me. That in a nutshell is it. I don't know if I explained it fully enough, Damien. Maybe you can fill any gaps or ask me any questions on it if I haven't covered it. Yeah, no, I think it, it explains it clearly, but I suppose my question would be how does that relate to the UK market? Is I know obviously, as you say, America's usually ahead of us and these things are bigger over there, but is it something that is available in the UK market? If, for example, the house is valued at 100000 you agree to pay it off over 15 years, do you agree a higher purchase price? Is that how they get their money back? Or 
just you, talk us through how it would work if it would work in the UK. I think would be my kind of leaning. Yeah, well, it, I haven't done one in the UK, so I can't tell you from experience. But what I can tell you from understanding is, yes, it can work in the UK. The difference in the UK market is that uh, essentially you 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 still have a legal agreement, and I suggest you go to a conveyancing solicitor who has specific experience in this, and we can probably suggest a few, or at least one, um, who has experience. But then you you do actually get the issues like stamp duty needs to be payable up front and that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of commercially, how you how you you uh, spread the payments, that's up to the parties to work out. Really, uh, if somebody wants to sell you a hundred thousand pound property over ten years at ten thousand pounds a year, broken that down to the monthly payments, they can do that. But if they decide that actually they want to collect some interest equivalent for the fact that they won't be fully repaid until after 10 years, of course, the, the vendor concerned can decide to say, well, the total installments will add up to more than £100,000 because I actually want an interest return as well. It's commercial. Yeah. It's commercial, in other words, to agree what the installments would be. But obviously, anybody buying would need to do their own sums. Uh, just to flip back to the, my US model, what I did is I did a discounted cash flow using an assumed mortgage rate to arrive at today's value uh, if I were to buy it cash, and I tested that against the market value. You can do exactly that in the UK market as well. So just flipping it round then, you've just said that in the US version, it's kind of break-even cash flow. The vendor is getting the property purchased over 15 years. What's the benefit to the vendor to do this? So how how available are these deals? How likely is it that people will come across them and find them? Because it's why would the vendor not just rent the property out and be no worse off and still own the assets at the end of it? Well, they different reasons. They can still they still technically have it as an asset, so mm -hmm. that might suit them for some purposes if they want to show um, you know an asset statement or something like that. Um, it could well be that the property, it's not going to be, you know, Central Park, New York, where you can probably buy this type of property. Let's, let's, let's be honest about that. So it, it's sort of not going to be prime central locations. So maybe not that attractive. There may be a slight lull in the marketplace in that area and they can't necessarily sell it immediately. So they're happy to take, um, you know, a deferred sort of a, a sale as it were. And I take, you know, from a buyer's point of view, I go in with my eyes open and know that, well, fair enough, maybe the market is a little bit flat at the moment, but in 15 years, what's it going to look like? Um, so, I, you know, I, it works for me, kind of works for them. The other thing is, and this is something to perhaps be a little bit careful of, the vendor can still use that property for fundraising purposes if, uh, if, if they wanted to. Now, what I've done in my case is I've limited the contract provisions in that respect so that the vendor doesn't just load up more and more and more debt and get into trouble, get it repossessed and then I never take ownership. So there's some couple of risks, commercial risks to take account of there. But I think, you know, essentially, probably the most realistic reason is they can't sell it for what they want to sell it for in a realistic time, which is what would lead them to thinking about some sort of deferred uh, installment uh, contract agreement. And am I right in thinking this is mostly with existing houses and not homeowners, but individuals, companies that own the property outright? It's not new build stuff. Um, yes, I think so. Uh, the the ones I particularly bought were bought from a developer actually, and what he did is he bought bought a property, he refurbished them, and then he sold them using this model. Um, and he bought them um, 
and they're pre-tenanted. So, you know, it's a turnkey operation as far as I'm concerned. And that's his business model. His business model is to buy rundown properties, do them up, tenant them, and then sell them on as a package solution. Um, the one in Chicago, it's um, Section 8 or LHA tenant. So, again, you know, you, that might not suit everybody uh, to have that kind of tenant. But that's that was the sort of uh, the package that they're offering effectively and from their point of view they get around about 150 percent of the of today's value over the term of the contract um and and i still think that's a good deal because it works out less than five percent mortgage equivalent rate yeah that Which was actually just a, a, a slight way for me to help you segue into the next one oh i was what? trying to be smooth though with our links but are you trying to get me to talk about the next one on my list were you I was going to, yeah. Uh, but not so subtly. I didn't pick it up. So the moving on to developer finance, which is slightly dif different. So vendor finance is, you know, where it could be a homeowner, as you rightly say. It happened to be a developer in this case, but they did own the property. Developer finance is often, uh, and I didn't pick up your link, <laughs> where it's, it is probably a new build or it's a conversion. Um, the developers built the property. I can talk about a specific example I had there. Uh, I bought... Um, a flat that was uh, new built. It was uh, it was already tenanted actually in my particular case, from a developer in Sheffield, and the developer basically wanted to get off site, um, you know, sell the last remaining units and uh, and get off site and move on to another project. So they were offering all sorts of uh, incentives uh, for to do that. Normally they'd offer a price incentive, but in this case they they also offered finance incentive. So the developer provided the uh, the effective bridging finance to acquire that property. So uh, just to clarify, the developer essentially lent the money for me to buy the property. And in this example, they lent the full purchase price, albeit it was a discounted purchase price. And I know your views on this, Damien, so don't start going down that rat run. But um, in very round figures terms, I bought it for just uh, about 90, around about 95,000 pounds and ended up selling it eight months later for 125,000 pounds. I think it was 130,000 pounds, but there was some extra costs in there. And the developer funded the 90, 95, 97 and a half thousand pound purchase price. So it was very specific circumstance that allowed that to happen. Uh, but if you knock on doors of developers uh, towards the end of projects, you often find either discounts or sometimes, in this rare case, developer finance uh, opportunities as well. The, the downside to the developer is I'm not sure they can record a sale if they're also financing the property, but I'll leave that to them to worry about rather than me. Obviously, the upside for me is that I didn't need to go for a formal finance application with a bank. Um, and I just used the developer's funding. And in fact, it was 100% funding, so I didn't have to put any money, any of my own money in. Sounds good. I think f from my experience with sort of the larger national house builders, I think they probably would count that as a housing completion, oh, their right. numbers and their financial accounting, because they've effectively sold something, but they now have an asset against it. Because as you say, they just become a normal mortgage lender, don't they? And you owe them a lot of money, but you've purchased the property off them. So I think they would complete. They would stick that on the balance sheet as a housing completion for their numbers. Yeah, I think what they work with. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, they may actually go as far as having separate legal entities: one one doing the sale, one doing the finance, and maybe that's how they do it. But um, who am that's I to question? Problem, yeah, exactly, exactly. But all I'm saying is, so how to find the opportunity? 
you know, particularly particularly in slower markets, um, or particularly when a developer is just looking to get off site and they just want to clear the last couple of units. They're they're and obviously. end of financial year for developers. It's yeah. always a good one to find. If you, yeah. Some of them, most of them are either going to be tax year or calendar year, but there are a couple out there that have random ones. I know there's one that ends end of July. No idea why. Um, but if you approach developers on a bigger project, as Richard said, that is coming to the end of it. Um, sometimes you'll get good deals that you can negotiate with them at that point. I agree. So I think people are probably aware that maybe it's a source of potential discounted deals, albeit off developer list price. Don't don't comment, Damien. Don't. I'm not saying anything. Great. Um, so it could be a source of discounted deals. On occasion, it could also be a, a source of finance deals from the developer as well, using developer finance. But let's maybe leave that one there. But I think it's about time you actually had a go, Damien. So. Well, yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the one I've got on my list here then, uh, assisted sale. So that's quite similar in as much as the current vendor is the one that kind of helps you along with the financing side of things. What this effectively means is if you find a property that is in need of work and you think I could buy that, do the work and sell it and make a profit, if only I had enough money to buy the property in the first place, if you approach the vendor and actually say to them, well look, you for whatever reason, don't want to, can't, haven't got the money to do the work to this property and then make a profit on it. That's why you're selling it with works needed. I have a small amount of funds, but enough to do the work, but I can't afford the property in the first place. How about we go together and I will pay for all of the work to be done. Um, we'll then advertise the property for sale at a much higher price and then we'll split the profit 50-50. So from a vendor's perspective, if just using numbers, um, if they're going to sell the property for say eighty thousand, you agree to pay it, and you agree to buy the property at eighty thousand. But you're going to spend say twenty thousand on the works, and then you'll look to sell the property for, let's just say, one hundred and twenty thousand. The vendor still gets their eighty thousand, but they now get a fifty-fifty split of the profit, which in this case would be ten thousand. So they're getting ten grand more than they would have done, and you're getting ten grand from having only put twenty thousand in. So you're getting a fifty percent return on investment. So that's, in broad terms, how assisted sale works. I've done this myself, and those numbers weren't that far off. I think, I think we agreed it was high 70s. I spent about 16,000, 17,000 on it, and then we sold it for 125. So the return for me was about the 60%-ish. But the vendor, instead of getting the high 70s, and I probably could have bullied them a little bit more on the price if I wanted to buy it off them. So I probably could have got them down to, say, 70 they ended up walking away with whatever it was, best part of ninety thousand. So they were happy, I was happy, and it didn't take it didn't tie up much money from my point of view. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? Because often we often talk about trade offs between time, money and knowledge. And um in that case you, you didn't you didn't use any of your own money. Um maybe for the works. I don't know if you funded the works, did you? Yeah, I funded the works on that one. Okay, fine. So you just used a little bit of money to fund the works, but mainly it was your time and your knowledge that you were applying to, to make the return for you. Yeah. And let... Exactly, yeah. So instead of it costing me, say, 95000 it actually cost me sixteen, And I got, from so from a return on investment point of view, it's effectively buying a refurb project with 100% purchase price finance, doing it this way. But then you get 50% of the profit at the end rather than the full 100%. So, so it's... You know, ideal world, you would buy them all, cash yourself, do all the works, and move on um, from an ease and transaction point of view. From a return on investment, something like this 
can massively, I mean, well, my return investment was well, 70% or something ridiculous um, in about four months, I think. So, it, because you, we didn't have to do the six-month rule as well, because they never technically sold the property to me, so they'd already owned it for several years. Mm -hmm. So once the work had been done, they could instantly put it back on the market. Yeah. So the work took about seven weeks, I think, from memory, and then it took about the same again to sell it on, um, and then a bit of delays with legals as ever. But yeah, it was about four months from start to finish, and the vendor got a win out of it. They got more money. I got a win out of it. I got a profit on a relatively small input of cash. So. How you go about finding these deals? Ah, that was the question like that. burning in my head. <laughs> I know it was. I could almost sense it. Um, the way I've and I've not done these a lot. I've done two of them, I think, um, in the years I've been doing it. Partially because I've not had to. Um, I've not needed to be that creative from a financial point of view, fortunately. Um, so, but the way I've done it is I basically approached people who are selling dilapidated properties that I would usually just try and buy as a refurb project. And just, I think at the time, I'd just bought some of the three houses at the same time, so I didn't have the cash available to buy it. But I'd looked at four of them, and this was one I still wanted. And so I just proposed it to um, to the agent, who stared at me blankly for quite a while. <laughs> so I just sort of said, look, any chance you can either get me in touch with the vendor, or we can all sit down and have this conversation. And because I knew the agents quite well, they were like, yeah, fine, we'll do that. What I, the way I explained it to the agents is basically you could get a percentage of the sale price now at 80000 or you can wait three, four months, and you can get a percentage sale of the property at 125000 So again, they win from it, so they were happy to at least let me have the conversation with the vendor, and then once I explained it to the vendor that basically, yeah, I will be doing work to your property, but it's for your benefit. If we can't sell it and the whole thing goes wrong, um, <laughs> I was going to say a naughty word then, mm -hmm. um, then they effectively still have an improved property, but we did put an agreement in place that they would repay me from the sale proceeds any of my just costs, so that we weren't going to split a profit, but if it all went wrong and everyone walked away, I'd at least get my money back. So there was that was probably not the, the tightest legal agreement I've ever put in place, so that would probably be the bit I'd highlight to people as keep an eye, an eye on. Yeah, I think that was the other question I had, really. How would you contract such a thing? What kind of contract is it, for example? So it's, it's effectively it's a deed of trust. So you're taking over, you have a beneficial interest in that property now to the extent of the amount of money that you put in for the work side of things. So in this case, it's effectively I have a deed of trust that is worth 16 grand. I think it was about 16 and a half from memory. Um, so when they come to sell it, they've agreed to pay me 16500 um, and that was kind of done with negotiation over, well, I think it's going to cost this, and they kind of agreed because they didn't really know what they were doing. That's why they hadn't done the works themselves. So they agreed that that seemed like a fair and reasonable amount. So, But we then put anything, we set a, a line in the sand and said, your property is at this day worth 77000 I'm going to spend 16500 So anything over and above that that we can sell it for is a 50-50 split. So basically, they get they definitely get their 77. I definitely get my 16 and a half. Anything over, we split 50-50, and that's kind of how the deal trust worked. Did you also have an agency agreement, or did you cover the terms of agency in the deed of trust? In other words, you you would have to um, you know get them to sell at a certain price. You would you do the marketing? Or would you leave that to the estate agent? In other words. Yeah, no, we didn't do any of that. Possibly I should have done. We basically just, we knew we were going to go with the existing agents 
who had kind of put us in touch with each other. There was a bit of a an ethical, I wanted to use them because they'd help me out get this deal in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of knew we were going to do that. I'd already run all the numbers and shown them my desktop due diligence to say, look, when this property is in this condition, it should be valued at this price. So we had an idea of what we'd be trying to market it for and sell it for. But I guess in theory, if they could have changed their mindset, well, no, I'm going to put it on the market for 70000 now. And I don't know why they would have done, but yeah, in theory, they could have. So maybe that is something that I should have put in there. Yeah, okay. I'm just polite and trusting. Yeah, well, what I was going to say was it's um, there's probably a few um, notes about risks. You know, generally, contract um, is definitely one of those, isn't it, from many of yeah. these things we're going to talk about and have already talked about. So, okay, great. Um, uh, assisted sales. Is it? Uh, yeah. Back to me, is it? Okay, fair enough. So maybe so. maybe continuing the theme. So we've gone vendor, developer. How about bank finance? So um, yeah, it's, it is very much a, a variation on a theme. And this can happen sometimes with uh, repossessions or calling in of facilities. So the bank ends up owning the asset, or they technically already do because they had a charge on it. Um, the specific example, it's probably best to illustrate with a specific example. So... The specific example I've personally done is I uh, bought. You're gonna like this. I'm always talking about international properties, and you're gonna tell me to focus on the UK. But I'm gonna do it again. Yeah, well, I'm gonna <laughs> do it again because I did it in Portugal, and bought a property in Portugal. It was um, around about the housing crash, and that's significant, I think. Um, you know, around about 2010, I think it was something like that. Uh, so, you know, Portugal wasn't going through great times, had a bit of a crash, and uh, the, the developer had a very good reputation. In fact, wasn't particularly themselves in financial difficulty, but the bank felt exposed uh, uh, because of the amount of debt they had outstanding, and they could probably see what was going to happen in the market. So they told the developer, we want you to shift a lot of your property, uh, and in order to help you, we're happy to offer finance facilities to any individual customers. So in other words, they ended up shifting their debt from the developer on individual units to individual purchases. So I ended up buying a uh, an apartment in the in the Algarve, and I got 100% finance from the bank um, as a result of that. And uh, the bank, in return, got uh, eff effectively transferred or reduced their exposure to the developer. The developer got a sale, albeit they probably weren't very happy with the value uh, because they were pushed into some sort of forced sale scenario. Uh, I bought the property, and the lender concern gave me 100% mortgage for for all intents and purposes. So that was it. I bought the property. I put nothing into it of my own money. Um, it was a very good property. Went out, looked at it, did some due diligence. It was a good developer. Um, I don't think all of the ones available at the time were necessarily as good, which is a bit of a warning. And one of the clues is that the st stage in the market cycle lent itself to that opportunity arising might not be as readily available today, in other words. Yeah, I think that's probably why I'm not going to ask many questions on it. I think it was it was a good tactic at the time, but I think realistically you're going to struggle to find any of them. So maybe re-listen to this episode in a few years' time if it happens again. <laughs> I think what we're trying to do here is talk about having a range of tools in your armory, but some of those tools are going to be more relevant at certain times in the market cycle. And in fact, what you what you probably don't know, Damien, is I've been speaking about quite a lot of alternative creative strategies over the series, and some of them, so lease options work very well when there's a lot of negative equity, for example. You know, we've already had that conversation in a different episode, but there, you know, there's still reasons why lease options work today, but they work particularly well when there's negative equity. So it's you know after a, a housing crash, 
Same is true with uh, the 100% bank finance. It's probably after a housing crash, um, it's going to be more relevant. Anyway, laboring that point, that's probably me done on my, my one. How about you? Do you want to get back in the chair and talk about another one? Yeah, so similar-ish to the last assisted sale one is um, something called exchange with delayed completion, um, where you kind of, it does what it says on the tin, you exchange to buy a property, but before you actually complete on it, you then carry out the works so you can get it valued at a higher price and complete on it at that higher level. So it, it worked quite well a few years ago, um, where you would, yeah, I mean, there's not a great deal more to say on it, is there? Um, you exchange on a property at a certain price, you then get to do all the work on it um, and hopefully get it upvalued. There is, just thinking about it, there is actually a way you could exchange at a higher price, do the works on it so that it then gets valued up at that price. Um, again, to reduce the amount of equity deposit that you have to put down into it because it is a genuine, you've not sort of bought the property, done the work and then refinanced it, this is the initial purchase price and it would be valued up at what it looks like in the state you try and buy it in. So there's a couple of creative ways you could use that, just thinking about it out loud. <laughs> well, glad to see you put so much thought into it. But you've done, you've <laughs> actually done this, haven't you? I have, yes. Yeah. So I was doing this about a similar sort of time as I did the assisted sale one. So it was sort of 2000, well, 2006 through to about 2013, I was doing random stuff like this. Um, so yeah, I've, I've got experience of this. This was, it's quite a legal thing. Um, so again, I mean, we can put you in touch with some people that might have some experience with this, but it was something that, whereas the assisted sale was kind of me writing it down saying this sounds reasonable because you are exchanging contracts and you need to go through a conveyancing solicitor and make sure it is all above board and legit and you are signing up to purchase a property. So it is more of a legal commitment doing it this way and you are definitely buying this property it's just you're de delaying the date that you actually complete on. So you could have, I think I had a six month between exchange and completion, and that allowed me to do a bunch of works, get a tenant in there. So from day one of actually owning the property, I had an increased property value with a sitting tenant. So it worked very well from my perspective before I started incurring mortgage fees and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to clarify, you're going to need things, practical things, that they call it key access, don't they? But for all intents and in intents and purposes, you need to be able, able to go into that property and do stuff to yep. it. Have control. And that's again, that's something signed between the two solicitors to say, yeah, you've now got authority to um, have the key and access it and do works. Mm. And presumably you need insurance? You do? Well, like anything, once you yeah. exchange, because you then the legal buyer, it's kind of up to you to have building insurance on there. Um, but any works you do, you should have. Um, well, either yourself or whoever's doing the works have some kind of public liability and all that kind of insurance to make sure you're protected. And I guess the delayed completion bit, as you rightly say, you are buying this property, so you probably have a, a forward completion date. You're going to have to have your funding in place um, and, and perhaps a backup plan if it doesn't work out quite as you plan, eh? Exactly. The assisted sale one is kind of a wing and a prayer. Hopefully this will work out. If it doesn't, it's not the end of the world. With this one, because you've legally exchanged contracts, then yeah, if you walk away, you're losing your deposit and you are in breach of contract because you have signed on the dotted line to say, I will buy this property. Um, so it is slightly more onerous, so the risk is possibly a little bit greater with this one um, versus the assisted sale. On the counter of that, though, the other side is tied into the sale of it, whereas the assisted sale 
possibly less so. Mm. So swings and roundabouts. And when you did this one, the exchange, or, the, the, or when you've done it, have you tended to, oh, no, I suppose you haven't. You've just had deposit monies, a, a small deposit money when you exchange, yeah? So, yeah, I've exchanged with like 5% usually, and then I've done the works, started advertising it for a tenant, um, and then completed after that. So usually I will put a six-month completion between um, delay in the completion, but once I've done the works and got someone in, then I'll usually just say, okay, I'm ready to complete now. So from a financing point of view, financing commitment point of view, you've put in the cost of the works and uh, a notional deposit, a nominal deposit. Yep. Hence why it's a creative financing strategy. It is indeed. Fantastic. Is there anything else that happened on that particular one that, you know, or, or that you're aware of generally people should be aware of? Uh, I think, again, this one, it's the hen's teeth element of it, of how many people are willing to do this. Most people who are willing, who are looking to sell their property are looking to do it for a reason. So if they're an owner-occupier, they've got another property lined up. So if you say, oh, any chance you can leave now so I can do loads of work, that isn't necessarily going to fit in with a lot of people. So it tends to work a bit better with investors um, who are probably tenanting the property and just a, a bit bored of it. The property now needs work, so it's not worth their while to do the works themselves, but it doesn't make any impact to them if they exchange and complete in a few months' time. If you can swing it in a highly appreciating market, happy days, because you get an extra six months of capital appreciation. Equally, the opposite of that, if the market's dropping, then you might find yourself, you've exchanged at a price that the property's now worth less than, which could be bad times. Um, so again, it's just a case of how you find these things in the first place. And again, for me, because I buy most of my stuff via estate agents, it came with a conversation with the vendor. Yeah, and I think finding getting access to the vendor is important, isn't it, in some of these? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people I know try and do direct-to-vendor. Yeah, if you can do it, great, but that's kind of a full-time job to get access to vendors directly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess it would probably be, what, empty properties, run-down properties, stuck on the, stuck on the market properties... Yeah, be the I mean, I assume that's all that exists because that's all I ever look for. <laughs> it's not all that's out there. So, oh, right. just to be clear, people actually live in houses, then. Yeah. Ah, now there's a nice segue uh, to my next one. People actually living in houses. Can I pick up my next one? I mean, I'm curious to see how the segue works. Right. But yeah, go for it. So, how about squatting? There we go. Oh, I see what you did. There. Yeah, yeah. Creative strategy. The next one on my list is called adverse possession, uh, otherwise known as squatting. And on that cliffhanger, we must leave it for this week. Don't worry, we shall explain all about squatting as a creative financing strategy without risking arrest next time out. I do plan to do a, a wrap-up ec episode in a couple of weeks, so we'll pick up on the common or not so common themes when we do that. But don't forget our 360 degree property business workshops later this month, will you? Sunday the 22nd of January in London and Saturday the 28th of January in Manchester. The link to the workshop sign up pages is in the show notes, but we'll send it to you if you just email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. Just put uh, 360 degrees uh, workshop in the title if you do that so I can identify it. We genuinely have limited places at these workshops as we, as we like to be able to speak to everyone individually, so uh, don't delay. 
I really do hope, though, that 2017, regardless of whether you come to one of our workshops or not, uh, genuinely turns out to be your best year in property yet. And we're very excited about the coming year as well. So, coming year ahead, even. So, let's commit together right now to making it happen, shall we? That's a pledge, I think. As always, though, email me personally if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. The show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. Thank you, though, for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.